Glad you guys are coming in. And today we're going to be looking at caring relationships and never give up as some aspects of. Hmm. I need to change a little something here. There we go. Hopefully that did it. Uh, We've been looking at different principles in surviving and thriving. You know, this morning, Doug Ammon was sharing that if you hide from anything, it's going to mess you up. If you bury pain or something like that and don't deal with it, it's going to come back and get you. I mean, that's just about a guaranteed thing. There's a saying, we're only as sick as our secrets. Whatever we're hiding is going to make us sick. And uh, believe me, I believe that to be true, and I'm going to be sharing some about that today. Uh, This likely will have more emotion in this presentation than any of the others that I do. And uh, some of you, and probably I will too, will have some tears during this one. But uh, it's all about not hiding from the pain. Because... I don't want to live an unhealthy life. Let's begin with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just ask that your spirit would be here with us this afternoon. We trust in you, and I thank you that you are always with us, that you have been working in us, you are working in us, and you will work in us. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. So, Principles we've gone over so far, a survivor has a positive attitude, but not overly optimistic, but it's realistically. They have hope. They're thinking the unthinkable. They're never thinking that it's always going to go good. Things can change. Story listening, you're learning from other people and from what goes on. Trusting in God, not in self. Uh, Alert situationally, you're paying attention to what's going on around you. You're flexibly prepared. You are prepared, but you're willing to flex. If you don't flex, you break. And then you're willing to uh, accept a new normal. You don't worry about what you've lost. You try and figure out what you can do with what you have. You don't waste time on the past. And then truth matters. God's word matters. Truth always matters, friends. If it's God's word or the simple truth as I use to explain it, do you have three to five minutes of survival in cold water or is it really the one ten one rule? If you do it right, you have an hour. Big difference between three to five minutes and an hour for survival time, isn't it? Yeah, huge difference. So really important to know the truth. Now we deal with caring relationships and never giving up. Let's take a look at the texts that talk about these things. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Wow, caring relationships actually are important. The closer we get to Christ coming, do we need Christian fellowship more or less? There are more and more people thinking they can do it alone. This truth was forcefully explained to me one day in a natural way way. My father turned 72 years old while helping me build a church. He is a construction background and he just spent time living in our house and uh, helping us build a church. On his 72nd birthday, we had a cake for him. And just for the fun of it, we bought 72 little candles. You have to count them carefully so you don't you get it right. There's a lot of them, you know. And you put them all in the cake, so you have this forest of candles on top of this cake. My wife started in the center on one side. I started on the center on the other side with two lighters, and we're lighting candles as fast as we can light them. By the way, you would not want to start from the outside doing this. (laughs) And so we're lighting these candles, and we're lighting it as fast as we can. And those candles in the center... They start burning, and they're starting to create a draft. And 
they're getting taller and taller and taller on their flames. And the new flames on the outside are starting to tilt in. Because you're getting an air sucking in from the outsides and going up the middle. It's drafting. It's creating its own updraft. That's why thunderstorms, I mean, a big forest fire will create its own thunderstorm head. I mean, over where I live, we de- I look at thunderheads creating over the other side of the mountain, and my first question is, is it a forest fire or a thunderstorm? Because I've seen them both ways. And uh, so we're watching this. We run around the corner, carrying the cake very carefully. You do not want to wipe out carrying a cake with 70 burning candles. Come around and say, Dad, blow it out fast. Because <laughs> the center ones are getting really short, quick. And Dad starts blowing. They are not trick candles, but they're pretty close together. It's like a forest of them, right? And they're burning really hot. And so as he's going around, the heat from the other side is just keeping her up with him. And it's relighting him coming back around. And he's trying and he's trying. And, and what really helps is they start burning down into the frosting. And you start getting them out. And <laughs> we had wax all over that cake. But friends, if we're in a fellowship of Christians and Satan tries to blow us out, we can keep each other going. All right? You need a fellowship. It gets really tough to take you down when the love of Jesus is all around you and other believers. We need each other. So that's the idea of do not forsake caring relationships. It's important. Mark 13, 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Never give up. Now, I'm going to tell you a couple of stories to go with that one. Caring relationships and never giving up. Al Haynes was flying a DC-10 from the West Coast to Chicago. He's a pilot. And they get up to cruising altitude and there's an explosion in the back of the aircraft. DC-10 has three engines, one on each wing and one in the tail. The number two, the tail engine, has just exploded. It sent shrapnel through the tail of the airplane. Parts of the tail are blown off. He comes on the intercom and he tells everybody on board the airplane, we just lost our number two engine. That was the explosion you just heard. But this plane can fly just fine with two engines. That part was true. What he then does is he checks his controls. He doesn't have anything. So he flips to number two hydraulic system. It's a good thing you have redundancy on this aircraft. He flips to hydraulic system number two, checks his controls. There's nothing. Man, I'm glad we have three systems. Flips to number three tries his controls, there's nothing. He doesn't have a fourth system. He's gone through all three of them. This plane was put together in such a way that you could never lose all three control systems. He just did. Pieces of shrapnel got hydraulic lines of all three of the systems. He radios in his situation I mean, the plane is flying along. Because of the tail damage, it's in a slight circle. But it's flying. And he radios in that he can't change anything directionally. He doesn't have up. He doesn't have down. He doesn't have left. He doesn't have right. What do we do? So the flight control people, they all get in a discussion, they get the engineers on the discussion, and finally the engineers tell Al Haynes, sorry, there's no way to fly that airplane. Well, Al Haynes doesn't believe in giving up, and he cares about his family, and he cares about everybody on board that airplane. And he doesn't believe in quitting just because they told him he can't fly the airplane. So he and a couple other pilots on that airplane have already been talking and now they're really talking and they come up with a plan. Um, 
It has been said that their plan was a lot like driving a car down Pike's Peak with no steering wheel and no brakes, controlling it by opening and closing doors. But hey, if that's all you had, why not try it, right? Here's what they did. They could accelerate. They had a throttle on the left engine and the right engine. And by speeding one up a little bit or slowing one down a little bit, they could turn the airplane a little bit and accentuate the curve it was in. So they get this airplane into a circle, a huge circle. We're talking states involved in a circle. <laughs> and they calculate where they might be able to bring that airplane down on that circle. It ends up being Sioux City. That's roughly in line with the circle. You've got to pick a city that's in line with the circles as he's moving across the country in these circles. Now, the next catch is to slow the throttles down slow enough and help the airplane fall at just the right rate so you hit the ground when you cross the city Iowa airport. Kind of a tough thing to do. But that's what they're going to try. And so he gets back on the talking to the passengers and he says, I'm not going to kid you. We are going to have a really rough landing. He said, I'm going to give you 30 seconds warning before the, we hit the runways. Hit the ground. He said, we ha have no hydraulic system. There will be no landing gear. And you'll pay attention to what the flight attendants tell you and you will follow their directions. There's a guy by the name of Jerry Schemmel on board that airplane. The first thing he did when the tail engine exploded was to thank God that his wife wasn't on the trip with him. The second thing he did was to ask God to help him help other people. He's that kind of a guy. By the way, he is a young executive. And what they know in airplane crashes, young executives are the most likely to survive because they're usually in good shape. And they don't wait for orders. They know how to give them. Jerry Schemmel's that kind of a guy, but he's also a Christian. And he begins comforting other people who are on the verge of going into hysterics. And he looks around and he makes sure he knows where all the escape routes are. He's running all the possible scenarios and how he can help people get out of this airplane once it's on the ground. 30 seconds before, well, just a little before that 30 seconds. Al Haynes was told by air traffic control, you are cleared to land on any runway. Al Haynes still has a sense of humor. He says, oh, you want to be specific and make it a runway, huh? <laughs> He's aiming for an airport because that's where the best rescue equipment's at. They've cleared him to land on any runway. How often do they clear an airplane? Hey, we have several runways. You pick which one. That's not how it works, is it? They have cleared him on any runway, and they've cleared every plane away from every runway. And they've got rescue crews all over the place trying to stay off of runways. Al Haynes is hoping he doesn't hit the airport, the terminal. Al Haynes hits the runway pretty much on the numbers. He was coming in way too fast and dropping altitude way too fast. But he only had one crack at hitting that runway on the way by. He hit so hard that it ripped the cockpit off and the plane ran over it. Flattened it, including Al Haynes. It tore both wings off. I've watched the crash video. It tore the tail off. The fuselage slides upside down into a cornfield and burst in the flames. Jerry Schemmel has memorized where all the emergency exits are at. When the plane comes to a stop, he finds himself hanging upside down. 
he unhooks his seatbelt and realizes it doesn't matter where the emergency exits are. There's a big opening on each end of the fuselage. But the plane is filling with smoke rapidly. He goes from person to person helping people unhook and drop to the ceiling, which is now the floor. Everything's upside down. He leaves those that are dead and helps the injured and the unhurt. And finally, he believes he is the last living person that at least that has a chance of getting out of this plane. And he finally jumps through the flames and out of the plane. As he's going through the planes, as he hits the ground, as the flames hits the ground, he hears behind him the cry of a child inside the airplane. He does a U-turn and jumps back through the flames. Back into that burning airplane. And he says, God, make that child cry again. And he hears a cry. He goes to that part of the plane, but he cannot find the child. God, again. And he hears the cry, and it's coming from an overhead bin that's now down on the floor in all the debris. He clears debris away, opens the overhead bin, and finds an 11-month-old girl whose overhead bin came open. She flew in. Overhead bin closed, protected her from all the flying debris. She's only bruised. She, he grabs her, sticks her under his coat, and goes back through the flames for the third time. He receives only minor burns. He's moving when he goes through those flames. He f- comes outside and finds a mother that's in hysterics that has lost her baby girl. And he reunites mom and daughter. And the fire crew's coming in and they're hosing people down. Some of them are on fire. And they're foaming everything down. Meanwhile, they find the cockpit. Jerry Haynes and his flight crew are alive in there. It's going to be months of hospitalization. They have to be cut out of the cockpit. And Jerry Haynes is conscious and alert. And he asks his rescuers, did anyone die? And they said, yes, sir. He said, then I am a failure. I told you this guy cares about people. And they said, no, sir, you are not a failure. More people lived today than died on your airplane. That's not bad for an airplane that can't be flown. He's the kind of pilot I'd like to fly with who will not give up. Caring relationships. That's important. Now... I'm going to tell you the story of my own daughter who taught me the same things. I heard Ed talk about a little boy who gave blood for his sister so she could live and he thought he was going to die. That story has been used many times to talk about what Jesus Christ has done for us. He gave his blood that we could live. I've decided there's a much better illustration. And that is a bone marrow transplant. Or it's also called a stem cell transplant. You see, my daughter was a young lady who loved Jesus Christ. Here, you can't see the picture very well. She's a junior in college. She's a wellness major. As a young girl, we did foster care. Here she is in a NICU unit as we're preparing to bring two little boys home that are under five pounds each at six weeks old when we bring them home. They are so medically frail that one cannot sustain life in a car seat. We have to have a car bed to bring him home. You put him in a sitting position, he stops breathing. They were so frail, each of them has a heart and lung monitor for breathing and heart rate that... 
Well, we don't know how many times it went off. We've had many kids on, on apnea monitors. But within a couple of weeks, we have maxed out the memory on them and they had to crash them to keep it going that night. All they know is that it had a max of a couple of thousand episodes and within a couple of weeks, that one child had had more than a couple of thousand episodes. There was a reason we felt like zombies. I can tell you this, if you've ever had an apnea monitor, the first time it goes off and you're sound asleep, you hear that piercing, beep, beep. every second there's a beep. The idea is you're supposed to be up and running to make sure that child starts breathing again because they were supposed to be breathing by this time and they're not. The first couple of times you go through that, first couple of kids, we just had occasional ones, man, I'd be on my feet moving before I really realized what was going on. But when you're having countless numbers of them in the same night, sometimes before you can put your head back on the pillow, if you happen to be asleep and you hear, beep, you're thinking, oh, I think I heard something. Beep. He's not breathing. Come on, kid, breathe. Beep. Come on. Beep. I'm going to have to get up. Beep. <laughs> My wife has resuscitated those kids multiple times, including while driving, and they code them when she gets them to an emergency room. By the way, they both survived. My daughter thrived on that kind of stuff. She loved it. She loves kids. She ends up being youth director, I mean, a girls director for Camp Yorktown Bay Youth Camp. Christian young lady that loves kids. Good combination, isn't it? Here she is in Ecuador. She knows what it's like to wake up on the wrong end of machine guns when you aggravate a priest. And she kept going. This isn't the trip that it happened on. That was an earlier trip. Where she's at right there is not exactly where the State Department would want you to be visiting. People got killed in those neighborhoods. By the way, she wasn't traveling with me at the moment. Well, I was there. But I was in different parts of the area. We just happened to meet at this moment out in those neighborhoods. She was with a couple of Ecuadorian Bible workers, and I was with a couple of Ecuadorian Bible workers. And I saw her, and I said, Hey, Jennifer! And they stick their heads out, and I took a picture. She loved ministry for Jesus Christ. We love outdoors. Man, I wish you could see it better. She's the one hanging upside down on the harness down here. There's my son. They're both repelling. She likes to go upside down to show you don't fall out of a waist harness if you go upside down. And uh, so we have a lot of fun together. But as a junior in college, she was engaged. Could you believe to the boys director from Camp Yorktown Bay? <sighs> this was in the fall of 2005. This next picture is December 18, 2005. She's the young lady with no hair and a mask on her face. Leukemia. A violent form of it that they never had, they told us at her death, greater than a 3% chance of beating. Jennifer is diagnosed with leukemia in Arkansas. I get this call. She'd been running a fever for quite a while. And on Thanksgiving break, we told her, well, she was going to her fiancé's house. We said, hey, look, have your fiancé's family get you into their doctor. Get checked out. I'm thinking she probably has something like mono or something because kids stay up too late, get, don't get enough sleep, and live in dorms and all this kind of stuff. Whatever. Get treated. Get back on track. So she goes to the doctor. She calls me up. Dad, they ran my blood. Their machine wouldn't work. They ran somebody else's blood. It works. So they're sending me to the hospital for a blood test. I thought, this is strange. She gets there. They run her blood. And they tell her, you have a super high white cell content uh, level. And we're calling for an oncologist. She calls me and tells me that. I know what's going on. She doesn't yet. I know that means leukemia. And I can remember the call very well. And in my mind, as she's telling me that, here's what went through my mind. We've talked the talk. 
Can we walk the walk? That was Wednesday night, New Thanksgiving Eve. Thanksgiving morning, my wife's on a plane from Maryland to central Arkansas. My daughter overnight was transferred into the University of Arkansas Hospital in Little Rock, where they put her in a positive pressure room because she has no immune system. She says, Dad, I was sleeping on the floor with a dog last night in a sleeping bag. She had no immune system. Thanksgiving Day, I worked the telephones. Friday, my daughter, they've gone through phoresis because they told her a flight would kill her unless they took out some of the white blood cells. She'd stroke out and die. They ran some of the white blood cells out in phoresis. They put her in an air ambulance and flew her from Little Rock to Baltimore, Maryland, Johns Hopkins Hospital. Research hospital. Pretty good place. They put her in there and started chemo. 30 days. You're not talking chemo like somebody with breast cancer or something like that. You are talking chemo that is designed to kill all the way down to the center of your bones. They run you right on the edge of death. And the reason you're in there for 30 days is they take care of all the complications as they try to bring you back. What are they trying to do? They are trying to kill out the bone marrow that's creating that those cancer cells, your white blood cells. You say, just improve the white blood cell system. That's tough when your white blood cells, your immune system, is your cancer. The normal thing to improve the immune system is creating more cancer cells. Everything's backwards. And so they go after it. The goal is that you find a donor. Now, here's the interesting thing. You cannot have a donor that's exactly like you. If you had identical twin, they couldn't use them. Why? Because they're going to kill your white blood cells and your bone marrow out. You're going to take a transfer in from somebody with a healthy immune system and they need somebody that's enough like you that it doesn't kill you, but enough not like you so they kill the leukemia. Because what happens is you bring in this new white bone marrow and it starts creating new white blood cells and it goes into your system and it sees one of those leukemia cells that's still hidden somewhere. It goes DNA check. It doesn't match. Kill it. If it was an identical twin, it go DNA match. It matches and it would let it go and it would all come back again. Now, people get in big knockdown, drag-out fights on the nature of Christ. Is Jesus just like us or is he a little different? I can tell you this. He's enough like us to be our donor. He's enough not like us to be our donor. Jesus used parables. He is the creator of nature. And so you look for a donor that has somewhere between a six and eight cap, uh, compatibility match. They would like six or better out of eight characteristics. And by the way, b uh, blood type doesn't have to be a match because you're going to end up with your donor's blood type. A bone marrow transplant changes you to the very core. Friends, when Jesus comes into your life, it changes you from the inside out. It might be a little bit messy. There might be a conflict. But in the conflict, in that little bit of a rejection battle that happens, the leukemia, the sin, gets wiped out. Unfortunately for us, out of the millions of people on the registry, there was no match. My wife and I were both four out of eight. But her leukemia was so mean, they could never get her quite to the place where they could try a half match, which might be fatal, but might give her hope. So we never got to get there. Wow. At the end of that first chemo, 30 days, she was able to come home for a little bit. Oh, just before she came home, 
Dr. Judith Karp, one of the research specialists there that was her doctor, walks into her room and said, girl, you're going to your sister's wedding. We said, uh, she's not ready. She says, we're going to get her ready. We're going to give her a four-hour leave. She's in Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. My daughter was getting married in Maryland, uh, uh, Hagerstown, Maryland. She gets in a van. We had a friend of, just sterilize their van. They pick Jennifer up from the hospital, get there just in time for the wedding, and Jennifer gets to be her sister's maid of honor. She cannot touch anyone. She's not allowed to touch a flower. She has to wear a mask. And then she gets back in the van and goes back to the hospital. It took them several days to get her ready for that. Finally, she got home, and I walked into her room one night, I sat down on the bed beside her. It's probably about midnight. She was awake. I said, Jennifer, I am praying that God is going to miraculously heal you and you will be a living testimony for Jesus Christ. This is a young lady that doesn't care if people know she's a Christian. That's who she is. She's not mean about it. She cares about people. She's non-judgmental. Kids all over Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, and Oklahoma love this girl. If God heals her, Think of the impact on that region. I walked in and said, I'm praying that God would heal you. This was her answer. Dad, that would be nice. But I have friends who claim they're Christians and they're not. And if God would use my death to reach them, I'm okay with that. She said that. At that point, she became my hero on living the Christian life. Willing to lay down a life to save somebody else. Oh, you've heard about bone marrow draws out of the hip, about them being painful? They are. I've watched them. It's a nasty process. And when they take a bone marrow biopsy, she would give them permission at Johns Hopkins for a second one for research. Because even if leukemia might get her someday, she was going to fight back and give them extra tools through the research on her bone marrow that they might beat leukemia. She didn't believe in giving up. Second treatment was 40-some days. The nurses told us it was the strongest chemo treatment they'd ever given on the floor. They said, she's got a really tough liver. We've got to overcome her liver to wipe out those bone marrow cells. And they went after her hard. It was such intense chemo that she was not allowed to take one calorie by mouth for 21 days. Because to put any load on her digestive system would destroy her whole digestive tract if she took any calories by mouth. That's tough chemo. So for 21 days, she was fed intravenously. At the end of that time, uh, it's now just recovery. And she got a nasal infection. Just a little, little spot in her nose. They put her right into emergency surgery they said if they didn't do anything, she had six hours to live. You don't have surgery on leukemia patients. But they did. She came out of it. A little while later, there was a second one. And she came out of it. And by the way, she did not die from anything but leukemia. No secondary infection. She came out of that, and here she is. We were looking around Washington, D.C. during cherry blossom time. We had a wheelchair. She refused to use it. She walked. But you'd have to know what the last week had been like. She was home. Her fiancé was in college, had gotten off for spring break, had surgery on his shoulder, tor torn rotator cuff, his dad picked him up from the hospital, took him to the airport, and he flew to Baltimore to be with his fiancée. 
he got there, and my daughter walked up to me and said, Dad, I feel like a teeny bopper, but would you take Matthew and I out for a date? He's on pain medication and can't drive my car, and I'm on medications and I can't drive my car. We need a chauffeur. <laughs> and so in the middle of the afternoon, I took him to a pizza place. You go in the middle of the afternoon because she has no immune system. And I dropped him off at this pizza place. Boy, is that scary. And uh, she went in. I went to Walmart's. Not that I like shopping, but I need, just needed to walk around somewhere nearby. And it was a March, not that great a weather day. I was walking into Walmart, and my cell phone rang. I just flipped it open and said, hello. And Jennifer said, come get us now. I said, I'm on my way, and she hung up. I'm thinking, what happened? Then I thought, but that was Jennifer that called. It means she's not down. What happened? Did they just break up? I'm thinking, oh, Lord, please not. These two don't need that right now. I know Jennifer doesn't need it right now. She doesn't need something else going wrong. And as I pull into the pizza place, my daughter Jennifer, I can see her standing inside the glass door at the front door looking out. But Matthew's not standing there by her. I open the door and I look at her and I said, what is it? She looks over to the side and I look over there and Matthew's laying face down on the table. The staff is all hiding behind the counter. They're, they, they look scared. They're not moving. They're just staring out there. I'm thinking, what is it? She said, Dad, he got a phone call. His father was killed last night. He'd been killed the night before, but it took him to into the next day to identify the body. It was a head-on collision. And the car had burned so badly, they thought the man that was with him was a lady. What do you do when a young man's fiance is dying and his dad has just been killed? I just went over and held him and cried with him. I got up and walked over to the counter. I said, throw the pizza in a box. I'm taking him out of here. They put the pizza in a box. They just wanted everybody out. They, they couldn't handle this stuff. Got him home. We made arrangements. Gave him a suit of mine that happened to fit him. Put him on an airplane to go to his dad's funeral. Jennifer couldn't go with him and support him. Two days later, on the day of the funeral, we're sitting in the hospital talking to her doctor. And he said, the leukemia is back. And he began to describe to Jennifer that there was nothing else that they could do for her and he tells her how she will die. She has one tear trickle down her face. She reaches over, grabs a tissue, dabs the tear, sits up straight and starts asking some questions. You can just see it in her. Even if leukemia kills me, it will never beat me. The doctor walks out of the room and Jennifer looks at Karen and I. She says, how am I going to tell Matthew? His dad's funeral's going on at that time. There are some pretty heavy hits that hit people. I got on the internet. Well, I was looking for options and I walked into my daughter's room again one night, right at the next night probably, and I said, Jennifer, is there anything you would like to do? She said, yeah, how about a trip to Hawaii? I said, are you serious? And she says, of course I'm not serious. She said, but how about a trip to Keene, Texas? Keene, Texas. That's where her friends are. She was a college student at Southwestern Adventist University through a series of miracles, and we'd had miracles all the way along. The fact that she was still alive was a miracle through that infections and stuff that she had. 
no, they had never had a patient make it through that before. Even at Johns Hopkins. She did it twice. And it was really interesting. As I was working on the internet, we discovered that MD Anderson in Houston, Texas had some trials. And I got working on it. And she was admitted as a trial. So I bought, I bought two tickets, one for my wife and one for my daughter, because that's all I could afford. My mother-in-law found out about it and said, no, I'm buying a third ticket. <laughs> so all three of us are headed for Texas. We're leaving Friday morning, Thursday night at 9.30 to 10 o'clock, somewhere in there, I get a call from Continental Airlines. We're sorry, your flight's been canceled. I said, ma'am, it happened to be a live call, not a machine. I said, ma'am, that cannot happen. This is my daughter's last chance for this trip. She said, I'm sorry, your flight has been canceled. Can you fly out of any air other airport? I said, ma'am, I live between Baltimore and Philadelphia. I will fly out of Philly. I will fly out of Baltimore. I'll fly out of Washington, D.C. I don't care. She said, I'll try and work on it. She gets back, get, calls me back. Said, sir, I have a flight out of Philly tomorrow morning at whatever. I said, I don't care what time. We'll be there. And uh, she tells me this stuff. I said, ma'am, I don't want to complain. But the seats we had were first class. That was the only seats available. That's why they cost so much. I said, but my daughter has no immune system. And first class is a lot better for somebody with no immune system. She said, sir, you bought your tickets late. That's the reason you're in first class. I said, I know. Is there any way? She said, I'll see. She called me back. She said, I have all three of you in first class. And it's a nonstop all the way in the Dallas. Thank you, ma'am. And we kept getting things ready. She called me back. She said, I am so sorry I've messed you up. She said, you are flying out of Philly and I've got you coming back into Dulles. Which is in Washington, D.C. She said, I'm so sorry you can't even take a car to the airport. And I said, ma'am, I don't care. You got me on an airplane. That's all I care. She said, but you're messed up. I said, ma'am, I'm not even coming back. I'm blowing those tickets off. I just need to get there. She said, what do you mean you're not coming back? I said, MD Anderson has taken her in as a patient. She said, if you came back, when would it be? I said, well, if I have an appointment Wednesday, my return flight, I mean, it, or appointment Tuesday. My return flight was Monday. I'm not making that plane, I guarantee you. She said, well, if, what about Wednesday if you're not accepted into the trials? I said, okay. And she said, all right, I have you on a return trip on Wednesday. No fee changes. No change fees. From a different airport. I fly... Four different airports on this thing. I buy a round trip out of, between two airports. I end up with four airports in this itinerary. No change fees. Tuesday, she's accepted. Wednesday, I had to walk away from my daughter and fly home. That's not easy. I left looking at her window in the hospital as I was driving away. Not sure if I'd ever see her again. I got to the rental car return place, dropped my car off, and it's one of those places you get on a shuttle bus and go to the airport. And the guy in front of me on the rental car shuttle turns around and says, this has been a terrible trip. I flew all the way into Houston for a business meeting. They didn't even have the meeting. He, bah, bah, bah. he goes on and on. I'm just sitting there thinking... Oh, whatever. And he finally unwinds. He says, by the way, what brought you to Houston? And I'm thinking, buddy, you don't even want to know. 
I said, I just left my daughter, MD Anderson, and I don't know if I'm ever going to see her alive again. He went, oh. That ended the conversation, and I was just fine with that. We got off the bus, got our luggage, and we're started walking in the terminal. This guy walks up beside me. He said, thank you for telling me what you did. He said, I called work and I told them I'm not coming back in today. I'm going home and I'm playing with my kids. Yeah. By the way, if you have kids or grandkids, go play with them. Love them. Touch them. But MD Anderson's only four hours drive away from Keene, Texas. And after school was out, my daughter was moved to the palliative care unit of MD Anderson. That's when MD Anderson had nothing else they could try. And they moved her into a very interesting room. It was one that they had for royalty. It was a hospital room with two queen-size hide-a-beds in it. It has a desk. It has a couple of televisions. It's got bookcases. It's got easy chairs in it. It's a hospital room. They gave it to Jennifer. Nurses and doctors who were no longer... She was no longer their patients, would take their breaks in her room because it was peaceful in her room. She wasn't preaching it. She was simply living it. They couldn't believe that this young lady was still getting up. She was the only one on the floor that could get up to go to the bathroom. And she was in by far the worst condition. They'd never had anybody with a white blood cell count like hers. They quit doing blood, white blood cell tests because she'd already passed the high count and why keep pricking her? Because her blood wasn't clotting well. They knew there was nothing they could do for her. On Wednesday, or Thursday somewhere in there, it was the last night that only one of us was in the room with her. And she'd said, I want an anointing service tomorrow morning. She'd had an anointing service the night she was diagnosed. She happened to be in the district of a very dear friend of mine who did an anointing service at the time of her diagnosis. She says, I know I've already been anointed, but I've just told the medical staff no more medical procedures. It's all God's. It's not theirs. If God pulls it off, he pulls it off. There will be no question." I just want this to be done in such a way that it's God, it's all yours, it's nobody else's. And I was laying there that night, and as I went to sleep, suddenly, well, here's what I prayed that night. I said, God, no deals. If Jennifer dies, I will love you and serve you all of my life. If Jennifer lives, I will love you and serve you all of my life. No deals, it's just in your hands. As I did that full surrender, I felt a warm glow physically all over me, as if I was in the middle of a warm ball. I went to sleep with that. And then during the night, there are different alarms going off at different times in her room. And every time as I woke up, the first thing I was aware of was this warm glow. In the morning, the warm glow was still there. And as I went through the day, it slowly disappeared. It was as if God was saying, I am with you. I am with you. Not that my daughter seemed to need it. She knew that. <laughs> By the way, in the seven months that she fought leukemia and went through unmanageable pain, no one ever once heard her complain or ask God why. And then... On that last weekend of her life, the college students showed up. There were up to 16 of them in a room at a time. That's the reason she had that huge room. 
and there was room for more. They sang songs and they prayed, and college students aren't used to watching a dear friend die. They think they're immortal. And one of those young people walked over and said, Pastor, I've got to talk. And so we stood right where this picture was taken. And they said to me, I've been raised in a pastor's family. But watching Jennifer, I've realized I'm not really a Christian. What do I do? And as I was looking over their shoulder, I was looking at Jennifer. Jennifer's words were ringing through my mind. But Dad, I have friends that think they're Christians and they're not. And if God uses my death to reach them, I'm okay with that. And I led that young person to Jesus Christ. And they accepted Jesus right there in her room. It happened to multitudes of people, including extended family that had walked away from Jesus Christ that were rebaptized watching her fight death and fight leukemia. It was all about how you do the fight. You see, a survivor is not how long you live, it's how you live. And sometimes how you die. And we were singing a song Friday night, singing songs, and they said, my wife said, let's sing this little light of mine, which is a song that we'd sung as the girls were little on Friday nights. And Jennifer was asleep, and as we were singing, my wife nudges me, and she said, look at Jennifer. Jennifer's finger had come up as we were singing this little light of mine. Then she opened her eyes, and she quietly started to sing. That was her last Sabbath. On Monday night, my brother-in-law was in there, and he has been known for not living a Christian life. He's lived a really, really hard life. And he said something to the effect of uh, people all over the world were praying for her. And Jennifer says, really? He said, yeah, I've started praying too. <laughs> then he said something about, yeah, he gets into all kinds of wacky stuff. He starts talking about this island over in the Canary Islands or whatever. It's volcanic. If it blows up, it'll send a tidal wave that'll go and he forget how far into the eastern United States. And a little bit later, I started reading from the Psalms. Though the oceans roar and all this, I will just trust in God. And Jennifer starts laughing. I look at her and she says, what do you mean? Well, she said, Uncle Ramey was just talking about all this stuff. Her last laugh was about trusting Jesus Christ in the face of death. And just trusting him. About one or two in the morning, she said she had to go to the bathroom. And as we were trying to help her get up to go to the bathroom, because she was not going to use a bedpan, as she's getting up, she's struggling. And my wife said, they have a depends on you. Don't worry. I need to go to the bathroom. And as she was trying to get up, all of a sudden she went unconscious. But as she was going unconscious, she simply mumbled, I'm dying. And she was unconscious for several hours till she died. She died at dawn. She di right before that, I'd taken her for a walk outside, wheelchair, to see the moon one last time. Or the stars, actually, is what we ended up seeing. And as I was walking along, I said, Hey, Jennifer, do you think of heaven? She didn't say much that night. But she just smiled and said, Yeah, I think of heaven a lot. She said, By the way, what's it like to die? I said, I don't know. I haven't been there. She said, I know you can't answer that. You see, she wasn't afraid of death. But she was a little concerned about what dying might feel like. Evidently, she knew. She told us when she was dying. But friends, it changed people's lives. I miss her. But here's what I know. Satan can't reach her anymore. I have four kids... One of them died without question trusting in Jesus Christ. 
This life is short, eternity's long. The real goal isn't how long you live, it's how you live. Satan can't touch her. I'm looking forward to the resurrection. Friends, the resurrection is going to be a party like you've never seen in your life. It's going to be spectacular. Don't miss it for the world. Jesus is awesome. What time is it getting to be? Uh, You know, I think I'm just going to drop it off a bit early today. But what's the worst that's happened to you? Don't hold it inside. I know people, when they go through the pain of the loss of a loved one, that hide from everybody. And then they have to hide, and then hide some more, and hide some more, and hide some more. It's okay to cry. It's okay to cry. When you run into a painful situation, embrace it. Don't run from it. Experience the pain and get through the pain. Oh, I think of my daughter every day. And sometimes I cry. Sometimes I don't. If you've lost a loved one, or especially if you've lost a child, you know that if you talk to another parent who's lost a child, you might both end up sharing tears. That's okay. If you start talking to somebody and they burst into tears, don't say, oh, oh, I'm sorry, and back away and just run and hide. You might be sorry. Just give them a hug and cry with them. We're only as sick as what we hide from. If you hide from anything, Satan will use it to destroy you. If you face it and ask God to take care of it for you and take you through it and carry you when he needs to carry you and it will be those times, he will. Now, instead of it being a tool to destroy me, I am reminded that I want to be there for the party. And it's a tool to help me. God works all things for good. And again, I got to baptize some of our extended family. By the way, people who were once active Seventh-day Adventist Christians who turned their back on it are some of the hardest to bring back. God through Jennifer did that. So I'm okay with it. Just like she said. God is good. Maybe you've been raped. Maybe you've been done wrong even by a church leader. Maybe that's the worst thing that's ever happened to you. But if you hang on to that pain and don't give it to God and work through it with Him, it will dominate and ruin your life. Have a lady... Oh, her story is horrendous. A pastor father who sexually abused her and handed her around to other religious leaders to sexually abuse. I knew her as a young lady and I knew she was a mess, but I didn't understand why. I do now. Later, the stories that she tells, and all of a sudden what I know, it lines up with everything that was happening to her as a teenager. And one day she confided a little bit of that in me. And she ted, said she was never allowed to talk. I said, I just, it was a comment she said changed her life. It's just one of those offhand comments. I said, I don't see anybody holding your, their hand over your mouth now. Talk. You're only as sick as your se- secrets. Her ministry today 
is fighting sex, clergy sexual abuse. She's talking. And she's fighting back. And she's saving other people. Whoa, catch this. God will take the worst thing that ever happened to you and use it for good. I've known it. She knows it. I hope you know it. A survivor is about the quality, not the quantity. And in Jesus Christ, nothing can take you down if you give it to him. Let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for being bigger than any problem any of us have, including death. So Lord, we give you you our problems. (laughs) They're now yours. Use them for good, just like you promised. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I realize something. Don't thank God for the evil that's happened to you. Give it to God and thank Him that He will take Satan's worst and turn it into God's best. You don't thank Him for the evil. You thank Him that He will turn the evil into good. Because He didn't cause the evil. Satan did. But He's bigger than Satan. That's the awesome Jesus. God bless you.